clubhouse. You are loyal, Lucius. I respect that. But mark my words, I will not come after you. I will come after your brother. What do you want? Information. That's all. This is Mita Delmonico's The Alienist Podcast. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Sheila McGann. Tonight we're talking about episode 202 of The Alienist Angel of Darkness, Something Wicked. Something Wicked makes me think of Harry Potter, like Something Wicked This Way Comes. So that title kind of felt incomplete for me. I thought the same thing. I would say Something (laughs) Wicked This Way Comes, like I I see like little Flitwick conducting the chorus and stuff. Yes, and they're holding the floating pumpkins. I had that. Mm -hmm. That was the Mm -hmm. image. All right, good. We're there. So this episode was also directed by David Caffrey, and the teleplay was by showrunner Stuart Carolyn. I actually saw something. I think I saw that David Caffrey is directing. He's detecting. He is directing five episodes this season. So we're going to have his particular style for a lot of this season. Is it the front five that he's doing? I don't know if they did it as like a block. I I know some shows like uh, Nosferatu, which we're also covering here at the clubhouse... They shoot their directors and their writers go in two episode blocks. So it'll be like episodes one and two will be the same writer, same director, episode three and four, because efficiency wise, it's, it's easier for them to make the episodes that way and to book the talent that way. So I don't know if the show here did a similar thing or not. Cool. Well, we'll have to see if we notice any style changes as we go. Unintentionally, this is turning out to be the second hour of kind of like a two-part season premiere. What were your general thoughts on this second hour of the two-part season premiere? Well, thankfully, it wasn't as macabre as the first one. So I think it is a palatable lineup. So I mean, the first episode that we covered and the first episode of this show definitely is dark. Not to say that this isn't dark, but it's definitely easier to digest. And it's it's definitely more setting up where this is going. So for me, this worked. For you, Mike, did the format of the two episodes work? Or does it hinder the viewing experience for you? This is a really rough show to binge uh, two hours of, I think. Uh, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. I mean, I watched these hours separately, but I can't imagine people who watched it tonight when they're premiering, I can't imagine someone being like at the end of at the end of hour one being like, I need another hour of that right this second. I mean, that's a dark soul watching this show, if that's your feeling. You know what I mean? How about, how about you? Does it go smoother for you like this or uh, is it a little too much? Well, I too watched this actually in two separate hour blocks in two separate days because I, I needed to digest episode one big time. And watching the second episode was a bit of a relief for me. The way that it was set up and the way that it didn't have the dead baby aspect of it, I really could have done without that in the first episode. But, you know, obviously it's needed for the plot line. So this worked for me in the sense that when you have something that dark, as episode one was, you want the resolution. You you do want to find out that this ends on a happier note, hopefully. So I, I think it, it works because you do you do want that sort of closure, that momentum to keep moving forward. So that worked for me. Uh, I guess, actually, that's an interesting way to to look at it. And and if the rest of the season holds up, 
maybe that is a good point. Maybe episode two hopefully acts as, you know, the second episode, the second hour acts as a palate cleanser to the first. I can't believe that's actually going to hold, but here's fingers crossed. For me, my bigger issue is more than the, the, it's a lot, two hours is a lot in a block of a show this intense and this dark, uh, subject matter wise. I feel like people like this show. The people who watch this show are big fans of the show. So why cut out a month worth of ratings, a month worth of eyeballs, just to kind of pack it in this way? They doubled up the finale of Snowpiercer, which was the show airing in this time slot before tonight's premiere. They doubled up the finale to move up Angel of Darkness, because it was supposed to start on the 26th. They moved it up to the 19th. And then at the same time, also announced that they were moving from eight weeks to four weeks, doubled up episodes. Why? I looked at their schedule. TNT doesn't have anything like on the bubble coming out in the middle of August. It's not the start of the quote unquote fall season, though God with COVID, who knows what the fall season even looks like. I just don't get, I don't get the rationale. Have have you, have you thought about uh, this or read anything that may illuminate why they made this call? I don't understand it either because the show has been absent since what, February of 2018? We decided that it was, you know, released in January of 2018. So there's been a a long lead up to the release of this. So I just, I don't understand the truncated schedule. It runs for four weeks as opposed to having two months of internet chatter, ratings, as you said, and all of the hubbub around the show. And, And the fact that it has been almost like a, you know, two year hiatus from the show, I don't understand the rationale to speed it up so much. I have to agree with what you said before. I do not think that like episode three and four are going to be the palate for to be be the palate cleanser for three necessarily. I'm a little leery of this going forward. I'm going to say because we got to watch the two episodes, you know, the way that we did, the format's working for me so far. But I mean, I remember the first season of The Alienist and how dark it got in the middle there. I'm not sure that this is going to be very palatable for the watcher at home. Just related to being palatable and, and, and subject matter that we've seen so far. Uh, I only want to bring this up now because I'm going to forget otherwise. TV Insider, when they were talking about, uh, they were doing their preview of this season, they had an interview with Stuart Carolyn, who took over as the showrunner for season two and, and has written at least the first two episodes. But in their article, TV Insider writes, if dolls freak you out, consider yourself warned. And man, I cannot second that emotion enough. But here's a quote for you guys to chew on from Stuart Carolyn about the season. He goes, Tonally, this year is a sense of something like Rosemary's Baby, he says. There's horror for sure, but there's also a lot of paranoia and strangeness. I think we've seen a lot of that so far in these first two episodes. It's definitely more uh, supernaturalist, supernatural horror feeling. It's much more horror feeling, I think, than even season one, which was more brutal crime. That I, so I agree with this. I don't know what your take is uh, so far on, on these first two episodes and that statement. Yeah, I mean, the first episode was so haunting and the strangeness we saw, you know, with Senora Lenaris and how jarring the scene with her in the, the cafe was, you know, when she gets startled awake and, and she's, you know, getting this feeling that somebody's watching her. It's a very sinister feeling and it did feel strange and disorienting. So what a way to warn us about the season, Stuart Carolyn. <laughs> I mean, yes, they're adapting Kalo Carr's novel, but something that we talked about a lot on our I Know This Much Is True podcast, and, and Caroline always was good about bringing this up on that podcast, was what kind of mind can think of these things? I mean, it, it was in the context of the twin brothers and the horrors that they're put through 
and uh, the backstories on that show. But I have to ask Caleb Carr. I wish I could interview him and be like, who hurt you? Like, show me on the doll where someone like broke you uh, that that you can you can really dig this deep into the macabre and into the into the darkness it's very Edgar Allan Poe in its uh, bleakness. Edgar Allan Poe, that is the nail on the head. That is the style and the feeling that I've been getting. Like, I feel like I'm in the, the poem, The Raven, especially in this episode when we see all the meatpacking district and the dockside and things like that. It's just dark and dingy. And it just gives me that don't look in the corner kind of a feeling from like Edgar Allan Poe. So I think that's a, a very like noir-esque uh, explanation for it. So as far as Caleb Carr being okay with writing about killing babies. Yeah, I want to know who heard him. So, but uh, I mean, it it does make for good storytelling. So, you know, uh, uh, babies. Uh, but but luckily, thankfully, we were kind of spared the baby death train tonight. But oh, thank uh, God. Holy, holy shit, we got so many dead rabbits. I don't know that I have seen so many dead rabbits in a room. There's a joke here. If I was a if I was a real cat skills comedian. You know, it would be like, I haven't seen so many dead rabbits since, you know, a magician's conference in 72, you know, something like that. But holy shit, there were a lot of dead rabbits. What are the Isaacsons trying, what do you think they were trying to prove? I mean, obviously they're trying to connect the poisons used on the babies, baby babies, with the rabbits. But it almost seemed like it was bordering on just rabbit torture. I got the feeling that they were trying to recreate more for Sarah than for the police department, the the mixture of the poisons or the congealedness of what was in the baby's mouth. And yeah, I could have done without the rabbits having names because I already feel bad enough for animals that get tortured as it is. So it didn't need to have Albert, you know, staring there at me, getting injected. Number four, you mean? Yeah. So you're, you're more of a team Marcus numbers kind of guy than a team Lucius. Let, let's give them names, even though we're going to be killing them. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the fact that he was kind of humanizing them, I don't know if it made that worse or better. We have a couple things to talk about Lucius tonight, but we're going to get there in a second. Let's jump right into the episode. Oh, but, but wait, you... you forgot. We, Chrysler, like he, he came to life this episode. Like we got humor from him. He was teasing John about the small dogs and the, the, the perceptibleness of liars. And then not wanting to leave lunch when Sarah had this immediate pressing concern for him. I don't know. He he kind of did a 180. Are we okay with this uh, lighthearted Laszlo? Is it weird? Did he change oh, too it, quick? It's super weird for sure, but I, I'm enjoying it. I, I love watching him tease John about the little dogs, the Pomeranians. And he went through basically every breed of little dog, obviously taking a dig at Violet. Uh, and, but beyond that, the, the scene in the lunch, the whole scene in the lunch between him and Sarah was fantastic. The two of them, I mean, Daniel Brill and Dakota Fanning are just at the top of their game in the scene for me. Uh, it, I think it exhibits their out of this world chemistry, but him contemplating whether or not to stay and, and have the dessert tray that kind of comes along. Uh, it's just so funny. I mean, he's just doing some great, great acting there. I, I like it. I think we need to see some more different emotions from Laszlo this year. We need to see Sarah rubbing off on him the same way we've seen him rub off on her, you know, making him a little more human, a little more empathetic, a little more jokey. He definitely needs to evolve in his emotions and, and his uh, humanistic traits. As much as it was strange to have him kind of come so quickly out of whatever funk that he was in in the first episode, I did like the play that he had this episode. The way he's teasing John, he knows the line to walk with John. I mean, he may he may come real close to it because John is a prickly sort, but he, but he has a pretty good sense of the line and John treats him differently. He gives Chrysler a lot more latitude than I think he would get other people before erupting. And and Lazo knows that and, and really knows how to walk the line and, and, and needle at him in a funny way 
in a loving way. And, and kind of the same way with Sarah. He knows the lines and, and, and how to tightrope walk it. And even if he goes over it, he knows he can bring it back because these are his friends. And I think if anything else, I think the evolution of the character, the development of the character is showing us that he is acknowledging that these people are not just coworkers, that they are friends of his, that he can have that side of a relationship with. It's not all business. It doesn't have to be all business with him. And I like that because it would be as, as compelling a character as Chrysler is, I think it would be less satisfying if he never developed, if he never became a little more 3D. So uh, speaking of Sarah and Laszlo and their personalities and their chemistry, the episode gets going pretty quickly with Sarah and Laszlo uh, interviewing the staff at uh, the Lenaris household and Sarah taking a, taking a much more delicate approach, uh, much more humanistic approach. And Laszlo asking really personal questions, really probing questions like, do the senora and senor get along? Do they leave the baby alone? Like really asking the, the questions that you know the staff probably knows the answers to, but it's totally impolite to ask. So we got to see their, their different interview styles almost at, right at the beginning here. And I don't think it was a surprise, but I was curious if you found one form of interview style more persuasive than the others or more effective than the others. Laszlo's timing was just so off. You know, here's Sarah asking such a gentle question and Laszlo's chiming in. Uh, Do you think Senora Lornaris is a good mother? But I think he was testing out his theory on people who lie and the perceptions, the small facial gestures that he was digging at John in the office about, you know, about the little Pomeranium and the Yip Yip dogs, you know, does, and his feeling on them. So I think he might have been testing out that theory, even though Sarah was kind of poo-pooing it. I, that didn't actually occur to me, but I, I like it. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. De- Chrysler is definitely someone who is always testing the waters. Whether whether they're strangers or they're, they're his closest confidants, he is someone who's always kind of probing the boundaries to see where he can get to. So, so that makes a lot of sense to me. I thought this scene was a great example of the empathy we talked about in episode one that Sarah has and that Chrysler does not or does not yet have. It was really on display here. So I was proud of us for having called it out and talked about it in episode one. Yay for us for, you know, picking up on that empathy card and his lack thereof. But also, like, when I talk about, like, his timing being off and I think him trying to pick up something was when he was talking to Senora Linares and he was pressing that he wanted to speak to Senora, that he wanted to interview her. And he was just indelicate and, you know, par for the course with him. But I think he might have been trying to, like, perceive something as well in Senora Linares's face. So that was just my final thought on how that whole interview kind of went. He's the kind of person who can make lemonades out of any kind of lemons. And so even when he's being turned down, he's being rejected or people are making excuses to why he can't do something. I think he is definitely observing and learning something. At the same time, watching Chrysler work sometimes, it takes all of my restraint not to shout at the TV. Sense the room, Laszlo! Sense the room! You know? Yeah, but you know, this is, this is where he does his thing and he's just laser focused on what he's about to do and your emotions be damned, friend. So did you notice Laszlo is definitely calling Sarah, Sarah this season and not Miss Howard, which was what he called her basically the entire first season. Is he seeing them more as equals now or something more? I had to have to go back and watch episode one, but I definitely noticed it in this one for some reason, maybe because they had more interaction. Uh, he called her Sarah almost exclusively this episode and, and a lot. Uh, he he was using her her Christian name a lot in this episode. So it struck me. I thought about the question of equals, or is this again going towards the friendship thing? I don't know yet if he sees them as equals. I think he definitely respects her talents. 
I think he definitely acknowledges, if, even if he doesn't say it out loud, I think it's clear from his body language, he is impressed with her skill set. I don't know if his vanity, to use uh, Marco's words, Dr. Marco's words from later, I don't know if his vanity is yet ready to consider him equals or Sarah equals with him. So right now, I feel like maybe it's more of a reflection of the friendship angle, the idea that they're friends, which is something new for him also, the idea that they have this personal side of their relationship, which was something that he was very resistant to in, in season one. How about you? Is, is him calling her Sarah versus Miss Howard more of a sign of them being equals in his eyes or, or more of a friendship? For now, I think it's more friendship. And I, I feel that he, as you said, does respect her talents. And the little feminist card comes up. It's also 1897 and women are not taken seriously in the workplace. We still do not have the, the right to vote as of 1897, did not come until 1920. There's definitely an imbalance in terms of seeing a woman as an equal when we talk about 1897. And as much as Laszlo respects her, I don't think it's an equals thing. I think it's definitely on the friendship side. He's he's learning things from her. And I think that that's coming into the reflective part of, of what we're seeing from him and some of the changes. He's a little bit softer in certain aspects, but when he goes into laser focus mode, he's quintessential Laszlo. I don't know. Is he also maybe looking to her for something more because he is now without a partner? So I don't know. That might be something, but I don't think he sees her as a professional equal. And that's just my sort of cynical feminist coming out. Uh, no, I, I don't think you're wrong. I, I think between him and John, he's much more likely to say she is qualified to do the job that she is doing. And, and I feel like he went to bat for her in season one more often to let her do her thing, to give her some room to walk. I think John, of the two of them, is much more likely to say he does it in this episode. You know, Hudson Street is no place for a lady. He is much more a product of his time in the in a male chauvinist patriarchy kind of way than Lazo. But I think you're right. As woke as he is towards Sarah's abilities... He's not yet ready to make her a full-fledged member of the professionals club. I, I don't think he would ever say out loud to her, or, you know, or mock, you know, her, her detective agency or anything like that. But I don't think he's quite there yet to, to fully give it its due that it, that it probably deserves. Just moving on, uh, you know, one of the big things was, you know, Laszlo kind of wanted to get through this Lenaris these Lenaris interviews really quickly because he wants to get to Dr. Marco's public speech, which I think was taking place at the New York Public Library. It was a quick uh, setting scene, but I think that was may have been the public library that they were going into. Don't quote me on that. Anyway, uh, Dr. Marco is giving a speech. I was curious if you caught the name of it, the, the name of his uh, presentation. I did. Murder, Madness, and Motherhood? What the fuck? That tells you everything you fucking need to know about Dr. Marco, right? I mean, <sighs> this guy is giving a lecture. And that lecture hall, I mean, that auditorium room was filled. There was not a seat to be had, which which is, makes it even funnier when Lazlo comes banging into the oh, room. Oh, God, I laughed out loud. Head, <laughs> so funny. And, and you could just see John's face, like, like get ugh. so embarrassed right yeah. away. But, yeah, I mean, a, a room full of men, nary a woman to be found in that room, listening to Dr. Marco talk about the murder, madness, and motherhood. Women, they're fucking crazy. They're as likely to mother you as to smother you. I mean, that's, that's, ki that's oh kind God, of Marco's Oh my God, can that be the tagline for this episode? <laughs> from, 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 from mother to the smother? Yeah. Uh, uh, mother to smother, I like that. 
Mother, that's that's the name of Dr. Marco's best-selling book from 1897, from mother to smother. Well, this is what I was laughing at. Like, it's like, you know, is the, the murder madness of motherhood is like, is that the 1897 answer to like the book and movie deal? <laughs> uh, it must be. It must be. I, you know, a lot of Dr. Marco, this presentation, everything he's talking about really is like a dark version of like Al Bundy's No Ma'am Club from, all, you know, Married with oh Children. Oh, my God. Wow. That's that's rolling deep there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the the idea that women are are basically there for male pleasure and for pro- propagating the line, uh, and that's their function. And you know, going like that's that's a sad but true kind of reflection kind of thing. I, I just like I, I just made me laugh the idea that he's out and out talking about how motherhood, uh, meaning women, and madness and murder are all just so nicely tied together. Let's stay on this though, because I'm curious. What did you think of Laszlo's accusations of Marco? Was he being calculated in what seemingly looked like him losing control and shouting and making a very public scene, talking about the Martha Knapp and the baby being found and you putting a, a, a person to death? Or was Laszlo legitimately losing control here in the scene? First of all, I thought that they had agreed that John would be the one to ask the questions, like bringing the moral force of the New York Times to bear on Dr. Marco. I think that tells you a lot about what what Chrysler's state is, because they did agree upon right. that. Okay, and so still does I wasn't sure. Yeah, you know, I was does. just like, okay, maybe I, maybe I misunderstood something. And so then when he comes in, first of all, the, the entrance that we talked about, he's trying to come in, he's late, and then he slams the door. The door slams behind him. And it was just like, hello, everybody in the room now knows that you are here. The fact that Laszlo went off the way that he did got me thinking that he was a little bit unhinged, that seeing Marco in the flesh probably brought back the flashback that he was having to the courtroom when he lost and he failed Martha. So I I think he was a little unhinged. I I think it was. I I think him banging into the room, making the scene. You know, we saw in episode one, the flashbacks losing to Marco in the appeal and Martha Knapp's appeal. I mean, for him... This is as much about finding Martha Knapp's baby as it is about him being told he's wrong in the public forum and Dr. Marco being right when he clearly doesn't respect Dr. Marco's abilities and or suspects him of nefarious motives. You know, we know he's got that baggage percolating in his head. He spent a lot of episode one ruminating about the effect of Dr. Marco on Martha Knapp in that case. And and he says at the beginning of this episode that he's doing a deep dive on the Marco and really trying to investigate him. And the reason he wants to jump him at this form is because it is a public form. He wants to make a scene. That being said, it does seem like he is losing control here. The only thing I would say against it, that it was more calculating that it was him losing control, is when Marco goes into the back room and Burns walks in, he's clearly flustered. He's talking to Burns about this man is out to get me. He's out to ruin. Uh, he's out to ruin me. He's out to ruin us all. Because for Burns, you know, you have to make it. You have to tell Burns what's it in him for him. But Laszlo is clearly in Marco's head when he goes backstage into like the green room. So maybe Laszlo does kind of know what he's doing. Maybe he knows he has to make such a large scene, even to the point of maybe publicly embarrassing himself. I mean, that room was laughing at yeah. him, except for John, who looked horrified. But maybe he realized he had to do something so audacious in order to get in Marco's head. You know, I'm watching you. It did feel like a vendetta that he was like seeking to level a vendetta against Marco and, and you know, publicly humiliate him. And Laszlo did come off as, as the one being ridiculed. 
because he came off so unhinged. But maybe this was more of a calculated exercise for him because he brings the credibility. Let's put it that way. He brings the credibility that he was the one who examined Martha. He was her alienist. He was talking with her and he has a medical opinion about her. So does Dr. Marco. While it looks like he's flying off unhinged, maybe that was a calculated risk on his part. And it paid off because Marco was rattled. I think it also may be a reflection, I think, just of your and my respect for this fictional character. You know, in the same way, I was always hard pressed to like go against Dr. House in a good episode of House, even though when everything seemed to point to him being wrong and everyone was telling him it's not lupus. You never (laughs) want. Yeah, it's not. You never want to go against the house, pun intended. Uh, and I feel like I never want to go against Chrysler because he's just earned my respect and he's got a lot of street cred with me. But man, he does seem to be bordering the unhinged. So something, something to keep an eye on. Did you catch the little spark of love between Bitsy and Lucius Isaacson when they come to visit Miss Howard's office? I may have said, "Aww, I am shipping. I, want- I am shipping right now on a Bitsy and Lucius." Little, little stand, standing big time. Cause she is looking at him like he is a snack. Yeah. And he's kind of looking at her the same way. You know, I don't, I, I, it's very possible that Lucius is a virgin. Oh, a hundred percent. He looks terrified of her, but cautiously optimistic, I guess. Yeah. I mean, he can definitely get underneath all of the clothes I'm sure that she's wearing, right? Cause women of that era still were wearing like 19 layers of clothing. Uh, yeah, but he can totally get there if he just can, you know, sack up a little bit. Yeah, but I'd like to see that. And you know what? I like that the show took the time. You know, the Isaacsons are a fun character duo in the show, but they're not core cast. They're like very much that next ring outside of the core three. So I like the fact that the show is taking the time to look at them and bring them into the fold a little bit. And this Bitsy character, who we've only now known for two episodes, automatically I like her. I like them together. I think this scene was adorable. And it was just a couple of looks and a couple of words. It was less than it, 30 it, seconds. And it, I mean, we're, we're here talking about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I give the show a lot of credit. And I like that. You know, this is one of those shows that's a big ensemble. You know, it has its core members, but it's a big ensemble. And it's giving love to all of them. I mean, we even get we get we get Cyrus later on, and Yay! we learn a new character in his life. You know, they're giving out juicy bones to everyone here, and and I'm liking that. I hope all eight episodes continue on that same. Track. This definitely helped to lighten the mood of this episode. This was one of those little you know high point moments where it's just like, oh, there is hope that the, that there's not going to be a dead baby lurking around the corner for me anyway. I think I think in a show that's dealing with such dark themes and you know we talked about in, in we talked about in the episode one killing male prostitutes young male prostitutes is disturbing enough but now you're taking it to the next level by killing babies and putting babies in jeopardy that's a real like reactionary kind of thing and so you need to have some light moments even later when the Isaacsons are talking about the rabbits like they're talking about something kind of dark with all the dead rabbits laying around them but that scene was kind of like the banter between the brothers was kind of light you have Chrysler in his couple moments you need some levity it can't be all serious because People are just going to be drinking, like, taking pills and drinking liquor while they're watching the show otherwise. Agree. So that was the like, light-hearted moment there for us. Back to the dead babies. Did you have the same thought as Chrysler when he was talking about the baby murder? So we got from the Isaacsons the method of the poison. So it wasn't actually a poison. It was a calming agent. Is that right? Uh, yes. I, th- I think it was understood it was a calming agent. But if, if administered wrong, there was a lot of talk about if, if all of these kinds of poisons that they're potentially dealing with... It's not necessarily lethal if it's administered correctly, but if it's administered in too great a dose, it becomes lethal. Right, exactly. So it's lethal in high doses is what my my note was. 
they find that there is a mixture. It's not just congealed blood. So it's part of this poison, this calming agent. And then it was a charcoal dilution. So powdered charcoal, which is used as an antidote to poison. Chrysler kind of goes with this notion that it's a perverse act of compassion. Did you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I think so. It, it seemed it seemed right. The way the Isaacsons laid out the kind of steps, and, and I appreciate the show, deals with a lot of old-timey words. You know, sometimes medical shows can be hard to follow with their jargon, even in modern times. When you're dealing with the same kind of precision and attention to detail, and then you're using old-timey terms, it can be hard to follow sometimes. So I like that this, this scene laid out in a couple different ways what the steps here were to murder. And the idea that someone poisoned the baby and then realized what they did and or had second thoughts about it and then gave this this charcoal poison, but still killed the baby. I think he's got the right tack here that this is a person who is troubled about what they're doing and decided while the baby still needed to die, decided that they needed to do it in a more humane way or, you know, or, or a perverse act of compassion to, to quote him. So yeah, I, I think that made sense. I think that made sense. Did, did, did that ring true or is Lazl reading into the character too much? I don't have a good explanation for you as to why there would be a calming agent lethal in a high dose. And I mean, anything in a newborn baby is going to be lethal. I mean, you're not even allowed to give Tylenol for crying out loud until the baby's like four years old. No, maybe not. But you know, under six months, you're definitely not recommended to give much medication to a baby. So anything given to a baby is going to be lethal. And then to give... I feel like the bottles say start at two years. I think, I well, think no, the, there's like, like infants the Tylenol. Tylenol. There's in there's right, right, right. For like, for like, like, yeah, regular Tylenol. I feel like the bottle starts at like under under two years. You should consult a doctor before you give it. Consult a doctor, but I remember like my son was about eight months old and he got a cold and he got a fever from it. And the doctor was like, yeah, give him a little tiny tinge of Tylenol, you'll be fine. But the elaborate act of going to the point of giving a baby a poison and then giving the baby charcoal to reverse the poison, like, so you're having second thoughts. I'm calling bullshit on the perverse act of compassion because then you end up going from mother to smother. It's not the mother, but I like the tagline. So I'm going to use it as much as I can to smother a baby. Like I am a mother and I am having a very hard time even wrapping my words around saying that to smother a baby is not anything that you could say is any kind of way to kill a baby, but worse to poison a baby and then have second thoughts and like bring it back to the point you give this powdered charcoal. So it feels very elaborate and I don't have a good answer as to why, but the fact that they did that and then smothered the baby and that's how the baby died is so much worse for me. I, I agree with you that it's a disturbing way. They're both really disturbing ways in their own kind of way poisoning anyone is horrific it's one of those deaths that you feel every moment of because you don't necessarily pass out as you feel your you know insides being ripped apart or shredded or dissolved right so it's just it's just a cruel violent painful way to die no matter whether you're a baby or an adult poison is a the game of thrones way of saying it. you know po poison is a coward's way of killing the, the idea of smothering is particularly disturbing with babies because it's not an uncommon way for people who are you know mentally unstable or, or mentally ill if they're going to kill a baby you know i would say probably smothering and what drowning babies are probably the two most common ways and it's really really disturbing because it's such an it's such a a violent act against something that cannot defend It's itself. a very personal way to end somebody's life. Yes, it, it is. It's like the act of choking someone yes, versus shooting yes. them. Yes, it's, it's just right? you are the mechanism to bring death by your hand. 
So I, I am. Man, can we, we move are, on? Because this is not. We're, de- <laughs> we're definitely going to list this podcast under comedy. This is some laugh around oh, shit right Oh, hell here. yeah. Um, but, by the way, just, just fact checking, the conversation between the Isaacsons about the rabbits and the numbers and the names actually comes before all of this stuff. It comes earlier in the episode. I checked my notes. Before we go on in, in kind of any more detail, I just want to stop and take a shout out to this show, which has done such a good job of depicting late 19th century New York. And this episode really reminds you of how good a job they do. Later on, we're going to get a really elaborate dock scene of the the West Side Meatpacking District and the docks. The episode opens with a scene that clearly puts you in the Meatpacking District in New York in this time. There's a shot off of the water showing Lower Manhattan as it would have appeared then. And the detail that the show goes to brings me to the scene in the in the Siegel Cooper store, where we meet the fabulous uh, Starling Hessler, who is like the manager for Siegler Cooper. What what did you think of this very flamboyant uh, manager? I want to go shopping with Starling Hessler when I am allowed to go shopping again, because I feel that he is just fabulous with a capital F. I really, I just, I dug him so much in like the 45 seconds that he was on screen. I, I really liked him. And just the play between him and Sarah was so genuine and it was just so flamboyant. And it was just, it was such a, again, a welcome comedic relief. And even though it wasn't meant to be comedy, but it just made you smile because it's like, oh, well, well, who are you? The play with him and Sarah was great. I mean, yeah, it was fantastic. But the way he was also looking at John, like he was just going to put him on a plate and, and serve him up at that 350 person restaurant at uh, Siegel Cooper. I mean, yeah. He would have had a dish of both, just... I think. He was, <laughs> he was uh, yeah, he was a thirsty boy. He was a thirsty boy for sure. But but I want the, the shout out about the set decoration and the props masters on the show. Uh, he's talking about the red ruby doll and going through all of the people who have bought the doll and he stumbles upon this E.H., who has bought the doll four times before, and then he realizes, oh, there was a fifth time, the first time, and he mentions a date, and he says, you know, uh, end of July last year. Well, okay, great. So we have kind of a general time frame, but I'm sitting there saying to myself, come on, show, give it to me. Give me what I know, what you know I want, and they do. They flip to the actual old-timey sales book, and they don't obscure it. It's a written-in page. If you look at the top, it says 1896. It says July. It has the date. So you can pinpoint that the Red Ruby Doll bought by EH for the first time is July 26th, 1896. I fucking love that. You can see the 247 Hudson Street clear as day. You don't need them to say it. And they say it a lot. Hudson Street, 247 Hudson Street. They say it a lot because they want you to catch it. But for the eagle-eyed viewers who want that next level of immersion, which I am, I sit there and freeze frame screens all the time. This show, I was I was saying it to myself, give it to me. Give me the book, because he's looking at it so intently. And then they did. And I, I mean, I'm not going to say I came, but I, it was, you know, I was very excited that the, that the show gave it to me. But I expect it from this show. That's the thing. I expect it and they deliver. That's so refreshing. The the attention to detail that this show gives to the set designer and, and all, we got to give props to them because they get everything right. From the costumes to the, what you said, the cinematography, when they're kind of zooming in on Lower Manhattan as it was in 1897. Obviously, there was no tall buildings quite just yet. They didn't exist yet, but it, it's definitely consistent with what we know Lower Manhattan to be. But also the fact that they have the sales book and they show it to us and the handwriting is like legit for the time, too. 
you would not find my handwriting in an 1897 book. And I am a hobby genealogist. So like, I love this level of detail stuff because like that is the stuff that is slowly becoming available online so that you could see, did my great, great grandfather buy a Dallas Eagle Cooper? Very much could possibly could be. And as they're uploading these logs and these different manifests and these different books and things like that, that they have, it gives you an insight into these people from the past. So the fact that they delivered on that, I was just, all right, I came. There you go. I, it happens. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you know, it's something that we forget a lot about, but the amount of physical data that is always being unearthed proves the fact that people, th people think of the past as a primitive time, right? We always assume, you know, something a hundred years ago was done more primitively than we do it today, but you cannot impeach records keeping in yesteryear. Think about how many things we know about the past, going all the way back to the Greeks and the Romans, the ancient Greeks and the Romans, the amount of stuff that they wrote down and they wrote down in a way that would survive for millennia. I love the idea that this kind of book probably exists because people are meticulous about record keeping when it comes to things like sales registers and sales books. I think you would bet you could probably find at Christie's or one of the auction houses an ancient, like, original, like, Macy's sales book from 1903 or 4, something like that. This kind of book that we see here probably exists, and I love that. And I love because it, it really gives you a, a, a tangible piece of the past that personalizes it. That's what I mean. It gives you a piece of the past that is very personal. It's very specific because it's dealing with an EH. It's dealing with a, a Trumbly, which I think was the name above EH in, in that scene. I, I remember that because that's the name of my son's music teacher. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> shout, out, shout out to Trumbly Music Studio. You know, I, I I love that because because just like you said, did my grandfather buy a doll at Siegel Cooper? I know he was there and I know he was there, you know, maybe in this time period. Things like this allow you to kind of recreate that. It's one of those things that makes like the movie Titanic so impactful for so many people because the attention to detail brought it so much to life. It brought it to life in a really tangible way. And it made you feel like uh, you were there. It made you feel like you were there. We, the audience, could have been standing to Sarah's left. You know, John's on her right. We could have been standing to her left in that scene with her, with John, with with Starling, looking over his shoulder at the book for the Red Ruby Doll sales. That's how immersive this show gets, and I'm fucking here for it. I love it. I feel like I can smell that store. Like, I can smell their perfumes and their colognes. I feel like I can just smell the ambiance. Like, that's how good the attention to detail is for me. Who is EH? Let's, let's talk about that. I know, I know on the, on our notes, we have actually one thing before that, but this, it fits better here. We don't know who EH is yet, right? But do we think that we have seen EH on screen yet so far, or is this a character yet to be seen? It's probably someone we haven't seen yet, just from how this is playing out. But my mind is reeling because I'm like, well, I'm going through all the characters so far that we've met. And I know this is a stretch, but I don't feel that Violet Hayward is necessarily Violet's first name. I feel like Violet... So there's a, there's a very common tendency in older times to name a child first name being the the lineage name. So you're usually named after a father, grandfather, great-grandfather, something like that, or conversely, great-grandmother, things like that, to carry on the, the family traditions. And then the middle name is technically then the name that you go by. So I have many members of my family that when they were very old and they passed away, were like, oh, that was Nora was her first name and Alice was her middle name. And she went by Alice her whole life. Wait, what? So there's a lot of that. So I'm wondering like, 
not that Violet in her vapidness could potentially be able to do something like this, but it just got me thinking like, you know, with those levels of detail that the show goes into, is that something that they would have toyed with? Violet did not cross my mind at all. My gut instinct says it's someone that we have seen so far on screen, but just don't realize. I mean, EH can be so vague and obviously it could always be a fake name or it could be a situation where the person we know on screen, we don't know their real name. You're using a fake name that we know and EH maybe stands for their real name. Uh, the one thought that came to my mind and, and it came out of nowhere was the matron because we've only heard her referred to as such. We don't know anything about her. It would be a nice connection with Dr. Marco if she was the female henchman going out and doing the legwork, right? Because you're buying these dolls related to these babies, and she's clearly on board with a lot of what Dr. Marco is doing, if not all of what Dr. Marco is doing. So so the matron jumped to my mind as, as a candidate. But yeah, my gut says that we have seen her on screen, but I can't back that up with anything. I mean, they, they're, they're really playing it close to the best. Uh, funny you brought up Violet, though, because... I was shocked that it turns out she's like the illegitimate but kind of acknowledged daughter of William Randolph Hearst. What did you think of this kind of twist reveal that they just casually lay out for us? I thought there was something in episode one where it's referenced that Violet is Hearst's daughter. I don't know. I have to go back and, and kind of rewatch it. But there was something alluded to. Did you catch that I, I in episode one? I think one? you're right that Violet says to John, you should be working for my father, not at that time. My father, yes, right. that's you what it was. working for my father. And, but, and, and, and they may have even cut to the New York Journal building right after she says that kind of thing. Like the way shows sometimes connect the dots for you. Like, well, we were just talking about this person. That's why we've cut here now. But it didn't. Well, my mind went there in episode one. Okay. So I don't know if this was necessarily like a big reveal for me, but I was just like, Wait a second. He seems awfully young to be her dad. So, I don't know. She doesn't have his name. She's got a Hayward name. She's got an H name. Maybe not the E-H that we're looking for. But also, at this time, you know, I'm going to put my true crime podcast head, you know, hat back on to say that women, just to throw back to our last point, women were not typically serial killers back in the day. Not to say that they're not serial killers, but it's predominantly more men back at that time. Back to William Randolph Hearst and Violet, I was not that shocked to see that she was his daughter because I kind of connected those dots earlier. But I don't know about John and, and Hearst kind of meshing yeah. with this whole uh, I, I, little love nest I don't thing. know that their future is written in the stars for sure. And, and I think there's a lot of signs here that John may be, you know, maybe even in physical danger when it comes to, to Willie to Willie, to, to, to WH or Papa, as Violet says. I, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that they make that illusion. It, it did, just didn't stick for me. I guess seeing it tonight, them in the office and their weird conversation about, should I call you WH or should I call you Papa? And it, it was almost like pseudo incestual. Like it was really kind of gross, but it was very uncomfortable. It was very, I mean, like he caresses her face. It's kind of fucking strange. Yes. Uh, William Randolph Hearst did have an illegitimate but acknowledged daughter named Patricia Van Cleve Lake. But much later in his life, uh, Patricia Lake was born somewhere between 1919 and 1923, and she lived into like the early 90s. So he did have an illegitimate daughter, and it was his final child, but not this early in his life, and it was, and that illegitimate daughter was not named Violet. But again, nice hat tip to the show, giving him an illegitimate child and, and acknowledging it, but just making it kind of fit for the story. Anyway, I, I don't know. It surprised me. I, I guess seeing them together and how weird their relationship seems to be, like, I think maybe that's what, that, maybe that's what the shock was for me. It was, it seemed unnerving. Uh, it, it was, was for me. 
So we have to talk about Burns, this fucking slimy piece of shit. I'm sorry for the editors who have to, <laughs> you know, edit this crap out at the end. But yeah, Burns, Burns makes his like slippery slope appearance. And he visits Lucius after Marcus runs out to get some more supplies for the rabbits. And he frames his reason for the visit with Lucius as he's quoting an old Chinese proverb saying that sometimes you have to scare a dog by killing a chicken. He's going to hurt Marcus if Lucius doesn't comply. And he feels that Lucius is going to be the one to supply him with information. That's what he's after. But Lucius... That means he has to, like, hand over the information that he didn't want Doyle to find out about the experiments with the rabbits. So is Lucius a good man? Is he turning on the team? I just, I don't want him to do it because birds, I fucking hate him. I was really troubled by this because I think Lucius in a second will give Burns anything he asks for if he believes that Marcus or anyone really in the team, but maybe not anyone on the team, but certainly Marcus, he's going to give Burns and Doyle anything that they ask for if he believes that Marcus is going to be in physical danger. And he knows Burns. He knows what he's capable of. So he has to believe that Marcus is in real physical danger. So I think he's going to do it. I think he's going to be on the mole on the team, which is going to break my heart. But at the same time, I kind of, I understand why he's going to do it. But when Marcus finds out, Marcus won't forgive him for it. You know what I mean? It's one of those, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't situations. Exactly. And Burns knows how to turn the screws. So he knows the only way to get to the information that he wants is to threaten a beloved brother, knowing that Lucius is going to do it no matter what. But Burns is just, he is like the slime of humanity. I have to ask, like, so Burns is no longer with the police department. He's no longer a paid He's like a retired, he's like a retired commissioner at this point. Consultant, but he's like a consultant almost. Like, I mean, yeah, I, don't know if I think it's one of, in 1897. I think that's right. I but think, he's playing all sides. Yeah, well, at, the, at, at especially at this time, I mean, this is like Tammany Hall is is entrenched in power still in New York at this time, and everything is corrupt. And everything is everything corrupt, is corrupt yes. and, and, and no more so than the New York police. And so Burns being retired or not doesn't really change what his standing is and the power he can wield there. If anything, he could probably wield even more, or not wield, he could probably do even more dubious and horrible things. because Right, because he's less constrained now by the, the rules of the infrastructure around him. Right, so. he could be openly on the take for a William Randolph Hearst or J.P. Morgan. He can... He, which we see. Yeah. Which we see in this well, episode later well, on. Completely. I mean, he, he can... he can or, or or Dr. Marco. He can be, like, officially on those people's payrolls as a private citizen, but still be wielding as much influence and power at the police, which we see when it comes to, you know, later on to the Duster gang and framing uh, the Lenaruses and, and the Spanish for killings at the docks. He's even more dangerous now this season than he was last season, if that's possible to believe. I just want to, I want to jump ahead here because I want to make sure we get to everything. Uh, so following their visit to Siegel Cooper, Sarah tells John that they're going to go to Hudson Street. Well, she, she she makes it so John really can't let her go by herself, right? Because John is this chauvinist hero who has to accompany her into this dangerous situation. But that involves him leaving a dinner with William Randolph Hearst and Violet and all of their social yes. friends. Am I wrong thinking that Willie was threatening John or, or, or when he's talking, he's talking to his pal about the Spanish and, and letting them, you know, cause trouble in their backyard and he's staring at John. And then he, he kind of takes John to task when he gets up to leave to go with Sarah 
Am I wrong getting a sense that John may be in like physical danger here? I don't think so. He so William Randolph Hearst in that scene does not take his eyes off John, who's sitting they're sitting at a circular table in the most opulent dining room in New York City. And his friend is talking to him to his left about the Spanish politics. And as he answers, as he says, you know, we're not going to let a bully, you know, bully us in our backyard. They don't know that they're in our neighborhood. He does not take his eyes off. He doesn't even blink in that scene. Did you even notice that? He was not blinking. He was just speaking these venomous words at John. And then when John gets up, William Randolph Hearst is mocking him, I felt saying that, you know, he has to, to go off and when he's married to Violet, that the, the hours will be much more social if he comes to work for him. But I don't feel that that scenario is ever going to see the light of day. I don't think that he respects John in any way. I feel that this scene is is laid out in a very sinister fashion. So yeah, I don't think that you're wrong at all. I did not feel the warm and fuzzies for John after that. And I think if this was a club... In modern times, I think maybe you could have thought he was basically sizing him up to, you know, to try and take John home. He was eye-fucking him so hard, but in this particular scene, it was so malicious. If he had been stabbing his steak while talking, uh, you know, about the Spanish and staring at John, it could not have been plainer, the anger and malice upon his face. Because not only does he now have this information from Burns about Sarah and Chrysler and John sniffing around being involved in the Linares case and the cover-up, but he also has this additional conflict of this is the guy who's engaged to his daughter and the allegations of John and Sarah, which is clearly known to people. You know, it's not like people don't suspect John and Sarah of having a thing. So there's a lot going on here under the surface with, with Hearst and his reaction to John, but I definitely got some goose flesh that John really should watch his back as much from Hearst and Burns as maybe from the Duster Gang, who he also finds his way into getting into trouble with this episode. Let's move there, because this was a great New York vibe thing to have, and it really changed the whole feel of the show to a real Gangs in New York kind of thing, because synonymous with turn-of-the-century New York and then early 20th-century New York are the gangs. You have all of the Irish gangs there, but before the Italian mafia came over from Sicily... Hey, hey, hey. Why is it always got to be about the Irish? You're disparaging the Irish left, right, and center here, Caputo. Well, because that's, that's who ruled the streets of New York, especially Lower Manhattan in the 18, late 1800s and early 1900s before the Goombas, you know, my paisans came from Sicily and drove them out. All right, that's fair. You know, it was the Irish gangs. I mean, there, there are countless movies. There are countless stories. There were countless gangs. All of Lower Manhattan and Midtown Manhattan were carved up by the Irish gangs. And we meet one tonight. We meet the Dusters, who seem to be involved from John and Sarah's investigation, they seem to be very much involved somehow with the baby-stealing ring that seems to also be sweeping New York. Were you surprised that we got gangs in, in the alias? I did not see this coming at all. I, I completely got the gangs of New York feel from this. They're, they're at the dock side. It's rough and tumble. We see this, this group of, frankly, very oddly named guys, but we find out that, hey, these are real characters that the, the writers, you know, gave some credence to. So the dusters were real. We'll talk about this in our history corner. And most of the characters that they have as the dusters were actual people. As ridiculous as their names were. Yeah, it's like Gugu Knox was a real person. Ding dong. <laughs> as ridiculous as that is, he's a real person. Yeah, so, you know, Google Knox owning the 247 Hudson Street that they go and visit, and John and Sarah nearly have an altercation with the Dusters. They're, they're 
seeking out the, the movement that they see in the shadows. And Sarah and John make their quick getaway into a little hiding spot. So I did not see the Irish gangs of New York coming into uh, into play here. So, you know, it, it gives an interesting twist as to where this could possibly go and what is the role and how big is this plot? How big is this syndicate of crime involving these babies? And, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Marco is 100% involved. Sorry, gotta say it here. But it just feels that this is a very large network now. I, I was surprised that the gangs came into it. But when I thought about it, it made a lot of sense. Because, again, if you need down and out people on their luck who may have be in trouble, may have a pregnancy that they want to get rid of, who maybe can't go through normal channels, that seems kind of like ripe for, you know, 247 uh, Hudson Street, we learned, used to be the uh, St. Ignatius boarding house. I couldn't find anything about that factually. But in the show, anyway, it used to be a boarding house. So it would make perfect sense that some kind of transient who doesn't want to be found, this EH, would maybe have lived there, that the gangs would be clued into people of power. I, I, I imagine if you look, uh, to, you wouldn't have to go too many uh, degrees of Kevin Bacon to get from Google Knox to Captain Burn, uh, to Burns and Captain Doyle. They were just entrenched in politics. They were entrenched in the police. They were allowed to run all of the crime that they did because it was so rolled up into the politics and the policing of the time. They are an artery system that exists at this time in the real world. So it makes a lot of sense for them to be involved. But at that time, but at the same time, I was kind of surprised to see them be involved. So I loved it. I, I loved it. I love I love a good gang story. I'm all about it. I, I can't wait to see where this goes. I think this Google Knox is kind of a fascinating character that we get introduced to here. But before we move on, though, I, I have to say, how happy were you to see Cyrus? And, and what did you think? We we meet his niece, who I don't think we get a name for, but Cyrus has got a Cyrus. I, Joanna. He calls her Joanna. Oh, he does. Okay. So so, yeah. so we have Joanna, this new character. Uh, Cyrus owns an oyster bar. Um, Yay! I, 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 how excited were you to see him? I was very happy to see him back, and I'm happy to see that he's like moving up in the world. He he's owning his own bar, and you know he he provides some very valuable intel to Sarah and John as they're looking for their Gugu Knox connection to to Hudson Street. So he gives them the scoop, the skinny on that, and and starts tying up the the, the clues that they found in order for them to keep moving forward. So I, I feel like he's an integral part to the clue line here. I think the show is so smart how it uses Cyrus and how it uses Stevie Taggart. You know, these people who are, quote unquote, beneath the station of your John Schuyler Moores and your Laszlo Chryslers and, and your, you know, even Sarah Howard. The, these people who are of the street. But the show honors them by, by showing how intrinsic they are to getting things done, to getting information, to meeting the right people you need to solve an investigation. I think the show is really smart to use those characters in that way. And and also it helps endear them to us too. You know, there's nothing in the scene about Cyrus from him breaking up the dog fight, uh, the dog fighting ring with a big smile or him warning, trying to warn John and Sarah off from getting involved with Ding Dong and Fat Jack and the Dusters. It's really hard to say all those names with a straight face. I was going to say, thankfully you had to say that and not me because I would have just like it been a puddle of giggles but, over but, here. But it endears you to someone like Cyrus, who's this big burly guy who can slam bodies together and, and crack skulls if he wanted to. But his first thought is the safety of my friends, the safety of these people who I've gone to war with last season. You know, I care about them in a very real way and I'm trying to keep them safe. I love that. I love that. And again, it's that character development of your not core characters that marks a great show when your b and c list characters in your show 
have that kind of believability to them, that 3D completion to them, it's a really mark of a, of a greatly written show. And, and, you know, the alienist has it in spades. Let's stay on Google Knox before we finish out the other parts of the episode. You gotta like a guy who keeps a bottle in his hand just for the possibility of cracking it over someone's skulls. Uh, let, let's fast forward to Google Knox really being in his- Wait, wait, you got, you mean you don't? <laughs> I feel like I always gotta be prepared. I mean, I keep a, I keep a ship <laughs> in my pocket, clearly. So Italian. <laughs> You never know when you're going to need to, you know, you know, give a guy a message. And obviously, I always keep cement shoes around. You know, I always have a cement mixer around for when I got to send a message. But yeah, so so we get to this other example of the show just painting a world for us. We get to, you know, the Gavin's Vort Market uh, and the the West Side Docks at the time. What what we now we call kind of the meatpacking district of Manhattan. It's just so beautifully drawn and it looks like a huge, huge stage that they must have built or recreated somehow. I can't even imagine the time and effort that went into recreating this whole set. But we get this walkthrough of Gugu really just being the fucking mayor of the town, right? He's in control here and, and he's got all of his hooligans and, uh, you know, he's able to summon people by his side to go after just John at that point. Uh, were you surprised that we had such a confrontation so quickly between John and then Sarah and, and Gugu Knox and his boys? This is just John just not knowing how to read the room. You mean, you criticize Laszlo for not reading the room, but John just got himself pinned and within like 17 seconds, has a knife at his throat. So it just, it brings us back to like, what does John actually bring to this except to make Sarah shine in the badassery that she is? In this scene, anyway. I mean, her pulling the gun while he has a knife against uh, John's throat made me just scream about the Untouchables. I don't know if you're if you've seen this movie. I love that movie with such a passion, and it's one of those movies. If it's on, even if there's five minutes left, I'm watching. Uh, it. I'm going to have Sean Connery tell you about the Chicago way, and I think you'll appreciate uh, what Sarah does here in this scene. Here's like a little clip from the Untouchables talking about the Chicago way. What are you prepared to do? Everything within the law. And then what are you prepared to do? If you open the ball on these people, Mr. Nash, you must be prepared to go all the way. Because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. You want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's how you get Capone. Yeah, so the idea of he pulls a knife and you pull a gun... That has formed such a large part of how I operate in the world and, like, approach the world. Uh, it really transformed me at a very young age when I saw that movie, and it has stayed with me. So yeah, I think I, we were, I like, 10 when that movie came out, so yeah. It, 1987? Yeah, close enough. Nine? Yeah. Nine, ten. Yeah. Um, I was nine. I, was, I probably didn't see it in the movie theater. I probably saw it on VHS, so I was ten. I also saw it on VHS, too. Yes. I saw basically every mobster movie. Oh, same. Uh, I've seen and I've seen them all, but I saw them all basically on VHS. Yeah, the the Chicago way, I was I was so I was so uh I had such a big goofy smile on my face when she pulls a gun. And again, yeah, you're right. She's just a badass. She is constantly having to pull John's ass out of the fire. Cause he is just not subtle, like I don't even know what. He he stands out like such a sore thumb everywhere he goes. It's really impressive how awkward he is in every kind of society. He's awkward among rich people, and he's fucking awkward among, you know, the, the street urchins of the world. It's impressive. It's, it's hard to be that much of a fuck-up, so, you know, kudos to him. But I just don't see how the New York Times keeps him employed. I don't know if his writing is that stellar, but his 
ability to get stories is leaving a lot to be desired. Sarah was dead on in the beginning of the episode when she puts Laszlo off of the hypnosis idea because she knows that Senora Linares is going to be against hypnosis. Chrysler kind of scoffs at this, but Sarah's proven right when he approaches Senora Linares. Why do you think she had such a reaction to hypnotism? Was even hypnotism even like a thing back in 1897? I don't know, but she had a really strong reaction. Why do you think she had such a strong reaction against it? She's Spanish. She's from Spain. So there is a high degree of Catholicism in the Spanish culture. Maybe there's a religious connection, but I mean, she knows about it. So Laszlo was bringing this up as a new methodology. Sarah dismisses it as, you know, it's an untested framework. So the fact that Senora Linares knows about it, I mean, we know that she's a painter, so she is learned in the ways of the world. But the fact that she knows about it and it's so new makes me question it. So I'm thinking maybe it's been discussed in like Catholic circles with her that maybe this is something that you don't want to go up against. But on the flip side, as a mother whose baby is now missing, wouldn't you want to pull out all the stops to find your baby? And maybe you put religion aside and you say, I'm going to use whatever I can. The fact that she has no memory of the day that she can recount to anybody leads me to think that hypnosis might be a, a avenue that you might want to explore. But again, it's another way that you can try to find your baby. Wouldn't you want to do it? That would be me as a mom. I'm sure you as a dad would feel the same way. You would think, but I, I agree with you. I think it's probably very old world beliefs, probably religious beliefs uh, that are informing her here. But I do think it's interesting, though, that when John brings up, invokes Martha's nap and takes takes the wind completely out of her being mad at him at the, in the lunch scene, when she sits down, she asks him if he thinks that hypnosis would actually work on Senor Linares. And he says, you know, just kind of what you were talking about, that the locked up mind and, it, you know, it really it would it would make her experience things that she doesn't think that she can remember. Sarah seems to think that she can convince Senor Linares, which is important because remember, remember in episode one, when Sarah is pitching to Elizabeth, Katie Stanton and to, and to Senor Linares about why she's the right person for this. You know, she makes the case that she's a good detective, but she's also a woman, and so she understands the case. It seems to be an interesting use here that Sarah's the one who needs to be convinced about hypnosis. And the idea that she'll be able to convince Linaris that it's the right way to go. I, I thought that was an interesting power play on her part, that Sarah knows this is her case, and she's really sticking to her guns about this. This is not Laszlo's case. This is her case. And if anyone's going to convince Senor Linares to use hypnosis, it's going to be her. And she believes that she can do it. So I like that. I like that they haven't let, that she hasn't let go of the bone, you know, in her mouth about the fact that this is her case, that she's not just rolling over and letting Laszlo take over. She's holding him to the fire, his feet to the fire about this. I like that. And I'm happy that they did that. Okay. I got to be a complete girl here. But the whole dynamic between the two of them in the restaurant when Sarah finds out that he went to Senor Lonaris about the hypnosis and her level of flipping out in the restaurant, screaming, you don't listen to me, is the most married couple statement <laughs> ever. <laughs> but these two are not married. So I don't know. Maybe this was what I was alluding to earlier. Maybe there's more to him calling him calling her Sarah than what we think. From the beginning of this series, for me, they have always had the most palpable and compelling chemistry of anyone on the show. They just sizzle and pop together. And the show constantly wants to tell us, if you look at any of the trailers or any of the social media stuff, all of them are about Sarah and John. They can't stay away from each other. They're drawn to each other. All of their social media, all of the media push about the show is trying to paint it that it's John and Sarah. And, and they do a lot of lip service with that tonight with the 
her picking him up at dinner from the hearse, and then, you know, he's going off with her to do the thing. They're really driving that home. But the if anyone anyone who who is watching this show can plainly see it is Sarah and Laszlo who have this off-the-charts chemistry together. And this scene at lunch is just proof positive of that. That don't listen to me is something you say to someone who's more than just a co-worker. The way she says it is someone who is who is intimately important to you. Yeah, it's personal. Yeah, and, and but more in just a, you know, my friend Bob doesn't think I'm good enough. It, it's more than that. It, it was intimate. It was more than just friendship. It was an intimate exasperation she was feeling with Lazo here, which I think says so much about what their real relationship is, whether or not the show wants to admit it or not. So one thing that Laszlo, in going to, to the Linarises, he did find that they had an additional servant, Eva, Ava, that they didn't get to interview in the first round with the servants. So this lady was not brought before them prior. So he does mention this to Sarah and Sarah with like with the dog with the bone, which she gets a notion, she gets a, a sense of this. So when they go to Senor, Senor Linares, Together, Laszlo and Sarah, after the scene at the restaurant, they question Senora Linares about Eva and what is her role. Eva is holding a secret that Senora Linares wanted to keep from her husband that involved the, the baby having an accident and making sure that the baby was taken care of, but more so at a secret hospital that would not be known to her husband. And Eva was the, the caretaker of the baby while she was in the hospital. So we clearly feel that this is going to be the lying in hospital and all of the nefarious shenanigans that go on in there. It has to be because where else is the thread? I mean, if Marco is really a linchpin here, Marco and the matron are really a linchpin here, there has to be a thread that connects the Linarises, you know, the very rich foreigners in New York and their baby to the lying in hospital. There has to be a connection there. So I had been wondering for two episodes, what was that connection? Where's the thread? And she gives right. us the, she gives us the thread with Eva and, and the secret hospital. Yeah, like how even do you, though they haven't said it yet, yeah, it has to be. Like how do you connect the dirt poor baby of Martha with the very rich baby of a Spanish diplomat? So that has to be that connection there. So all roads are leading to the lying in hospital. So you're 100 percent right. So all all the roads. I mean, uh, you know, Senor Linares doesn't say it, but I, I think you have to think. Unless the show is doing a great red herring here, which is possible. There could be two people at work. There could be two kidnappers at work here. Someone taking the poor babies and someone taking the rich babies for ransom. Which Lazo has talked about the ransom, I think, a couple times now about baby Anna. So it's possible there are two people who two different baby stealers going on at the same time. I don't, I don't think we can 100% discount that. But this story uh, with Eva and, and, and the secret hospital that she doesn't name gives you the thread to connect baby Anna to Dr. Marco and the Lying in Hospital, which is great because earlier we had learned that one of Dr. Marco's specialties is dealing with the unwanted pregnancies of broken mistresses of rich men. Uh, in this episode, we meet Richard Osgood, who is some kind of mucky muck who has a very broken, uh, zoned out looking mistress with him in tow named Helen, who is about to give birth. And so when the episode closes tonight, we see Helen being kind of drugged up and also being put through Dr. Marco's birthing procedure. And as soon as the baby is born, we see separated from the mother and, uh, and he tells the matron to, to tell Helen that the baby died, calls it a, a gentle kindness. So Helen is never going to meet her baby. So question one is one, 
what are they doing with the babies? Are they experimenting on the babies like the Isaacsons are, are experimenting on the rabbits? And two, Dr. Marco says he's not done with Helen, and he picks up a, a very sharp-looking medical instrument, and he's going to do some kind of experimenting on her. What the fuck is he going to do to Helen? That's question two. What is Marco doing to the women, the mothers? What are they doing to the babies? Any any thoughts from the scene that, that, that jump out at you? Any theories? What Dr. Marco is doing to Helen post-birth of the baby is um, he's going to tie her back up in such a way that it'll be almost like she never had a baby. So that ri- I, I, I'm familiar with the extra stitch. This, this is in uh, in it's in the men husband and, stitch is what it's called. Yeah, they, the 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 extra the extra stitch is known in male circles in the lore of male circles that if you slip a doctor a couple bucks, you can get that extra stitch to spice up your sex life after after you're done. Gross people. I I wasn't sure if it was that or if it was more nefarious because the way he says, you know, like I'm not done with her yet. He says something like, "I'm not done with her yet." Yeah, there's something that's that transpires in the earlier conversation between Richard and Doctor Marco, where he's concerned about being able to love her as ardently as he had prior. So that to me was like the dead ringer for that tightening up stitch. So, but the the, the part with the babies. Again, I, I'm not sure if this is a red herring, but I feel like Dr. Marco is intimately involved in some way, shape, or form with how these babies are disappearing, or at least being identified. If he is not the end train for where these babies are winding up, he is intimately involved in the trafficking of the babies. Who knows if if he is doing something with the babies or he's just sending them somewhere. Uh, I don't know that we have enough information there yet, but I think tonight definitely at least established that he is involved in an important way in funneling the babies away from their parents. And, you know, just another tie-in to the lying hospital. Um, the Isaacsons, you know, came back to Sarah a little bit before this and offered that there was a third substance that was co- in, found in the congealed mess of the baby's mouth, that it was a substance that was consistent with use on delivering moms to ease the pain of childbirth. So here is another avenue yet leading back to the lying in hospital. So Marco is looking pretty dirty to me. And the matron, too. I mean, she's oh. standing there while Hel- while Helen is duped out giving birth and Marco is, you know, he's got his catcher's gear on and he's, you know, he's getting the baby out. Uh, she, I mean, the matron is solely there. She's like, narrating the, the, the moral judgment of the scene. Right. She is she is she is morally judging the scene in like a play by play kind of scenario, basically slut shaming Helen for being a stupid girl getting involved with a rich man to begin with. You should have thought of this before letting a strange man put his thing up there. What is your deal, Matron? I mean, another one who you just got to think like, who didn't take her to the prom when she was a young woman? And was she ever a young woman? Stupid. No, no, she's never been a young woman. She was born Matron unnamed. Yeah. yeah, But saying that these girls are stupid, stupid, stupid. Oh my God. I wanted to reach through my TV screen and slap her. Oh, Sheila, what, what an end to, to, to two hours of uh, our first weekend here with the Alienist. I mean, these guys have just, I mean, they've just upped the ante something fierce for this new season. Time to go to History Corner. There were three things that I definitely wanted to look into and find out great facts about, and they all seem to be busts for me. Here they are. Before we get to the good actual real History Corner, here are the three things I looked up and I could not find anything about. Richard Osgood. Now, Samuel Osgood is kind of a first settler, you know, been around here since the Dutch have been in New Amsterdam. Samuel Osgood is a, like, a founding father kind of figure. He was around the time, I believe, during, like, the Revolutionary War and the Pre-Revolutionary War period. 
that was the most uh, like historically real name I could find with Samuel Osgood. There is another socialite who was part of the 400, the official list of the uh, the the socialite, the upper crust families that the Times published in the 1890s. Um, the the 400 being the most powerful families, and there was an Osgood Vanderbilt connection, but I could not find any Richard Osgood other than the physicist who is still alive today, who works up at Columbia, I could not find in his Richard Osgood Jr. I could not find any historical Richard Osgood, which made me sad because I would love to find out there was a Richard Osgood who was, you know, stooping mistresses and having them committed at this wacko hospital that Dr. Marco was running. So I was a little bummed that we couldn't find any real record of a Richard Osgood. Uh, second, I couldn't find anything special about 247 Hudson Street. That That's kind of in the Soho area of New York now. Not quite lower Manhattan, but near lower Manhattan. It's kind of a rejuvenated, posh neighborhood now. But yeah, I couldn't find anything special about that address, which made me sad. And then I could not find any actual history about a red, uh, ruby red jointed doll that Siegel Cooper may or may not have sold. So these were the three things I investigated that I could not find anything about. How about you? Did you find anything good in uh, History Corner this week, Sheila? I did. So when uh, Senora Linares is paid a visit by Laszlo, he's admiring the paintings in her foyer. And she comes down and she says that, oh, that one was gifted to me by Cecilia Bow, who was an actual painter. She was an American society portraitist. And she was more from like the Impressionism era. So she was, she was born in May 1855 and she died in September 1942. So 1897 would have been sort of at the, the pinnacle, the peak of her career. Uh, she trained in Philadelphia and France and she was considered to be, uh, sympathetic to the American ruling class and how she portrayed her subjects. So this was consistent with the portrait that we saw. This was a very opulently painted female. And uh, some of the paintings that she's most known for involve men and women with cats, with black cats. So I don't know if that has any bearing here, but I just thought that was a very interesting tidbit to drop in there. Uh, black cats being historically kind of symbols of bad luck. And uh, Chrysler yeah. talking about Francisco Goya as his favorite Spanish painter. And of course, he liking him, liking him because he turned inward and explored his dark subconscious desires and horrors. Of course, that's Laszlo's clearly favorite Spanish painter. I think that might be the only painter he knows. <laughs> also, also true. Also true. Um, I'm glad you I'm glad you actually found that information because I, I heard the name. I listened to it a couple times, but it didn't do anything for me. I, I, I couldn't summon any kind of historical knowledge about Cecilia Bow. So I'm glad that you were able to track it down. And- yeah, I just dropped it in Google. I was like, you know, why why insert the name if it wasn't something? So yeah, and the I, show does that a lot. Yeah. And this is the kind of show where you really I mean, it's it you learn something if if you take the time to just drop names in that they drop here casually more times than not you're going to find something kind of interesting or relevant to what they're talking about here such as the dusters the gang that we learn about uh tonight uh with goo goo and fat jack and and ding dong is based on the real gang called the hudson dusters they were formed in the 1890s uh their three founding members were named circular jack now i wonder if they got fat jack from circular jack if they changed his name from circular to fat for some reason but Fat Jack is actually skinnier than Skinny is yeah. in this episode. Yeah, it's like, you know, Tommy Two Nose or Tommy Two Times. You know, he doesn't necessarily stutter, but, you know, that's what his name is. Or Little Jimmy is, you know, 6'5". You know, the mafia gang names are always weird. Uh, there's a lot of juxtaposition in mafia names. Anyway, 
So you have Circular Jack, Kid York, and Gugu Knox. Gugu Knox is one of the founding members of the Hudson Dusters. He actually um, left the Gopher Gang. He he had tried to take over the Gopher Gang uh, in like a coup from Marty Brennan and failed. And so he left the, the Gopher Gang and co-founded the Hudson Dusters. Now, the Hudson Dusters actually really did operate from an apartment on Hudson Street. So maybe that's the connection to Hudson Street, why they used it in this episode, and they just picked a street number. But uh, yeah, the Dusters really did operate out of an apartment house on Hudson Street, and they became involved in election fraud. They were hired by Tammany Hall politicians. They were given protection from the law, from prosecution, so they could operate out in the open like we see them do in this episode, because they were on the take of those in power at this time in New York. Ding Dong who we meet tonight, actually was a member of the Hudson Dusters. That was a real person. He actually organized a pushcart theft ring, whereby he had a group of apprentice gang members. They would toss packages to him from passing wagons, and they would distract the police for him so he could, like, rob wagons as they went by. That sounds very elaborate. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I like that it was apprentice gang members. It was, like, it was like how they would cut their teeth, kind of, with the gang. But yeah, and Gugu Knox was a real person. He, uh, you know, lengthy criminal career. He was eventually killed by John Hudson in what police suspected was a dispute over bootlegging. So, uh, yeah, Gugu, Gugu Knox died. Oh, there's a nice Untouchables uh, connection there for you. <laughs> right? I, I wonder if he uh, took him down. I wonder if Gugu pulled a knife and someone pulled a gun, if uh, John Hudson pulled a gun. Uh, yeah, but Gugu Knox died as he lived, uh, being a criminal. So, yeah. A lo- a lo- that actually makes me feel a little bit better that these names were from real people because I'm like, where in the hell did they get these names? And then I looked up the dusters. And I was like, oh, okay, they're real. So when Laszlo is berating Marco in the lecture, he mentions that Martha, who, fun fact, the actress who played Martha, her name is Hebe Beardsell. She actually played Ariana Dumbledore in um, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Nice. So there is my Harry Potter connection. Something wicked this, this way comes indeed. Something wicked this way comes. So, you know, how's that for a connection? This is like Six Degrees of Sheila here. So, but when Laszlo is berating Marco, he talks about Martha being buried in Potter's Field and being under his care. And how does he account for that? So Potter's Field is actually a real place. It's an island off the coast of the Bronx in Long Island Sound. But it's also known as Heart Island. So if you see it on a map, it would be known as Heart Island. There's hundreds of plots, and each plot contains 150 bodies, but they tag the grave sites in such a way that anyone who's buried there, they they note the plot that they're in because they do try to identify these bodies. It's one of the largest cemeteries in the United States where unclaimed dead, the unknown, and the very poor have been laid to rest since 1868. It is still currently in use today. And the body of those interred are tended to by New York City inmates. So like Rikers Island inmates are the ones who dig the graves, who unearth the graves when they're identified, if they are identified. So there's a little bit of macabre history there for you. I love that. It's still in use today. I had always heard about Potter's Field. It's a term you hear in a lot of books about yesteryear. Um, but I never actually went and did the research about it. So I'm, I'm glad I heard him throw it off that she's lying in a Potter's Field. Um, and I, I, I personally did not go look for it. So I'm glad that you uh, tracked it down for us. That's fascinating. It's fascinating yeah, that so it's still actually, in use today. That's crazy. Still in use. It is the, yeah, it's one of the largest active unclaimed dead cemeteries that is in use today. But yeah, I know of Potter's Field actually through my work. I work in healthcare. So I work for uh, a hospital system in New York and we do send people to Potter's Field if they are unknown and unclaimed. There is a process to send them to Potter's Field. 
all those John and Jane Doe's. Very sad, but yeah, kind of crazy that uh, the one the inmate. You always think about inmates just kind of banging out license plates, not working in cemeteries. But there you go. But in an optimistic note, they do identify something like 40 bodies a year. So there is a little glimmer of a silver lining there. Very, very slim, but I guess there is a little silver. Very slim. I'm grasping at straws here. So uh, our, our final history corner item tonight was actually maybe my favorite. It was uh, Ganservort Market. Now, we see a little bit of the Ganservort sign in, this, in the top of the episode when we see Ding Dong and Fat Jack, you know, cutting up the bodies. Clearly, I, I knew that they were in the meat, uh, the meatpacking district because of all of the hanging meat, obviously. And, and there's the elevated L that's going by. So I knew right away and I knew where Gansport Market was. So I was able to place it just from like kind of the dark scenes at the opening episode. But you get a full view of it. They really recreated the full historical look of Gansport Market for that scene where John gets in trouble and Sarah has to bail him out with Goo Goo Knox and the other dusters. Gansport Market was in was based in what became known as the Meatpacking District of New York. There was an elevated railroad line that the one that we see at the beginning of the episode had actually been constructed through the neighborhood. It ran along Ninth Avenue and Greenwich Street um, and had been completed as far as 1869. It was used for freight hauling. It eventually was discontinued. And then uh, the High Line, which is no longer in service, is actually kind of now like a walking open air market replaced which this, opens on monday uh, sorry I, I love that um so so the high line eventually kind of replaced uh th- that was a passenger elevated train the elevated train we see in the beginning of this episode was just for freight hauling it was for getting food in and out and, and goods and materials in and out of this part of, of manhattan uh the gansport market was actually originally called the farmer's market it was an open air space for the buying and selling of regional produce it opened in 1879, and that, together with the West Washington Market, uh, was 10 brick buildings used for meat, poultry, and dairy transactions. Um, it all kind of relocated over to the river on the west side. Uh, that's why we're on the docks here uh, in 1884. By 1900, this area became home to 250 slaughterhouses and packing plants, and that's where the name of uh, the meatpacking district really took hold. So the the, the idea of the meatpacking district is you see it here right i mean we see it in that opening scene that gruesome opening scene tonight but it really didn't come to be known by that for some years uh still but uh yeah gansevoir market actually there is a a a rejuvenated version of the gansevoir market that actually still exists today but the version that we see in this episode has kind of gone by the wayside so just just a really great recreated piece of new york history that uh that the show did tonight and I, i really appreciate that about it All right. So we've seen the first two hours now. So what is a big question that you want to have answered for the season? And I want to hear your bold prediction. Ooh, big question for the season is I I, I keep having this nagging feeling that Marco is not the ultimate bad guy. I, I think the show has gone out of its way to paint him as the bad guy these first two episodes, which makes me think he's just a cog in the wheel. So I guess I really want to know who EH is, obviously. I mean, that was the big mystery drop tonight. But I want to know, ultimately, because I, I, I don't, I guess this relates to my bold prediction. I don't think Marco is the ultimate big bad. I think he is working closely with the big bad. So my prediction is Marco is not the actual bad guy we're going to end up hunting here. Just to kind of like how... The first season, switch gears and switch targets, you know, midway through. I think we're going to have the same thing here. I think it's going to be very focused on Marco and then switch to whoever he is reporting to. My question is, after tonight, I want to know who EH is, though. I want to know where baby Anna is. We had that room with all the baby pictures. 
that seemed like someone's house, maybe not necessarily the back room of a of a dusty clinical hospital. I want to know, you know, who is EH and and where is baby Anna being held? Uh, those are kind of the big questions I've got right now. How about you? What, what, what's your big question and what's your big prediction? Yeah, I want to know how Laszlo knocks Marco down off the peg. I have a feeling that Laszlo's geared in and and honed in on on bringing Marco down. But I don't. I, I I'm going to agree with you. I don't think that Marco is the mastermind. I think he's a cog in the wheel. I think he's the the vehicle in which he's able to deliver these these babies to whoever EH is and whoever the head honcho is. I think EH is going to be a woman. I feel like the show is going to make this this a twisty turn where women are not known to be killers as much. I mean, Lizzie Borden, notwithstanding, you know, 30 years prior, I feel like EH is probably going to be a woman. And I also believe that the engagement to John and Violet will be called off at some point in this season. So there's my bold prediction. I, so, something tells me EH is a woman too. And I don't know why. I just assume that. I, 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 and I, I'm thinking back and now why do I feel that way? I don't know. Because it's not necessarily a woman that bought like the ruby red doll that could have easily been a father or a husband that bought that doll. But my mind also assumed it was a woman. I don't know why, but I agree with you. I think EH is also going to turn out to be a woman, which, again, you know, subverting, you know, expectations, that would be kind of an anachronism for this time, which makes it kind of fascinating if they're going to delve into that and explore it. All right. Well, in three more weeks, we'll know if we're right. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's going to much sooner, much rather. It's going to go fast. Sooner, much rather than later. Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode of Meet at Delbonico's The Alienist Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you join us next week for two more episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Give us five stars, people. Five stars, five stars, five stars. That's what it's we need. It's not that hard. Do it. it. Listen, this takes a long time. This takes a long time. It takes you two seconds to go give us five stars. Anyway, thank, thanks, guys, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Meet at Delmonico's The Alienist Podcast is an original production of Pod Clubhouse. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, visit us online at podclubhouse.com.